So Leonard, uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, I cried for you this morning and I'll cry for you again, but I'm not in charge of sorrow, so please don't ask me when. When we uh, choose to to love in a world that changes, uh, grief becomes a, a facet of our life. And at some level, I feel like uh, grief is almost woven into the fabric of our nervous system, you know, that our the habits of of uh, of of seeking uh, love, loving partners, support, caretakers, the the possibility for loss is sort of woven into the fabric of being human. And uh, um, in a sense, to to love is to to risk. To love is to risk. And the more uh, deeply we surrender to love, uh, the more potential there is actually for grief. So Rilke says, um, it's possible I'm pushing through solid rock in flint-like layers as the ore lies alone. I'm such a long way in, I see no way through and no space. Everything is close to my face, and everything close to my face is stone. I don't have much knowledge yet in grief, so this massive darkness makes me small. You be the master, make yourself fierce, break in. Then your great transforming will happen to me, and my great grief cry will happen to you. One of uh, Jack's colleagues, uh, uh, African medicine man Maladoma Somme said something, uh, a quote that stuck in my mind for many years. He said something like, uh, "Like our our streets are filled with the ungrieved dead. Our streets are filled with the ungrieved dead." And. Uh, Insofar as we're going to love and lose things, uh, health and balance isn't restored until we grieve in some way, until the heart kind of comes to terms with the loss, is softened ultimately by the loss. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, there are really different ways of thinking about grief. Um, that's kind of a question, in a way. Is it a part of being human? Or is it a kind of corruption and symptom of clinging? Yeah? Right? That's, a, that's a bit of a question in the Buddhist world. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to say, when we lose a person or a relationship or love in some way, um, it's easy to say, like, oh, I should have known Anicca, impermanence, uncertainty. This is a core feature of Buddhist practice. This is a core teaching. Everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Change is woven into there are no things. There is just process changing, right? And so we can say, like, oh, I should just let go. I should let go. Yeah. 
but um, we want to be real careful about applying the Dharma in a formulaic way where we hear some teaching about letting go, about not clinging, and we just sort of like slap that on lots of different situations, or we just slap that on the pain of loss. The Dharma is much, it's much more improvisational than that. It's much more uh, about, you know, honesty moment by moment. And sometimes it feels like with grief, you know, it, it feels like a wound that just heals very slowly. And if you were to cut your hand and look at that cut, you wouldn't sort of urgently, you know, yell the command to like let go, you know, right? As you see the cut, right? It's a kind of process that, that takes time. And so um, I think we, we want to, uh, you know, as Leonard, Leonard Cohen said, we want to be uh, sensitive to that, that grief and letting go has its own kind of, own kind of rhythm. And um, yeah, the urge to like prematurely let go, you know, is um, just actually another form of self-harshness in a way. Now, the Buddha said, um, you know, in general, the Buddha really emphasized this freedom from, you know, the, like one of the classical refrains is beyond grief, sorrow, and lamentation. You know, this is what the Buddhist path, path delivers. Is it takes us beyond grief, sorrow, and lamentation. And... Um, the, the story, interestingly, of the Buddha is that, uh, that his mother died around the time of his birth. And I don't know the historical veracity of this, but that, that's, the, that's as the story goes, that is it. And that is perhaps the most primal form of grief. You know? And the kind of... Uh, experience that would lead one most deeply into the wish to relieve the burden of such pain. Interestingly, the Buddha, in some ways, uh, there are certain passages where it looks like the Buddha grieved too. And so famously in one one instance, after a couple very close disciples, I think Shariputra and Moggallana um, died. Uh, he was in a hall, the Buddha was in a hall with, as was said, hundreds of, of monastics. And he said, you know, without Shariputra and Moggallana, it feels as if this hall is empty. But then at the end of the sutta, it says, but the Buddha did not grieve and did not sorrow and knew the truth of impermanence, you know. And I don't know about you, but I, I want my Buddha to grieve, you know. I do. When we think about Dharma practice, um, we usually think about relief. That that is this is medicine. That's the classical way of thinking about it. The Dharma is medicine. It makes pain go away or hurt less. And for many different afflictive states in my experience, anger, anxiety, shame self-harshness, all of this. 
I feel like the Dharma has made all of that hurt much less. Arise with less intensity, hurt less when it does, cause fewer problems even when I'm caught in it in some way. And it's not hard for me, actually, to imagine a life where um, anger and anxiety and shame, self-consciousness, actually is very, very thinned out, maybe gone. And I know there are times when people are practicing, maybe especially on retreat, especially when the mind is very settled, where there is a sense of the a complete absence of all of these afflictive feelings. But um, I can't actually imagine a life without grief. That, that seems like a kind of uh, fantasy or, or maybe uh, an unwillingness actually to surrender deeply to love. And with grief, I don't actually know that the Dharma makes it hurt less. With all the other things, it, I find it does. But with grief, in a way, as I'll talk about more, it's like we, it gets the Dharma purifies it, but it actually may even cut deeper. So one solution to this kind of predicament of the heart leaning towards love, but the world being an impermanent realm, one solution is to, uh, to try not to get too involved. Not to, not to love. Uh, but of course, there are costs to this. This has been hypothesized as a kind of like a fundamental need of the human being, that to be disconnected, not to belong, not to have enduring bonds of care actually frustrates something that is innate to our biology. And so psychologist Roy Baumeister says, um, it seems fair to conclude that human beings are fundamentally and pervasively motivated by a need to belong, that is, by a strong desire to form and maintain enduring interpersonal attachments. If psychology has erred with regard to the need to belong, the error has been to underappreciate it. The desire for interpersonal attachment may be one of the most far-reaching constructs available to understand human nature. And so how we, uh, we, we need to take care and be wise in how we actually negotiate this, this impulse towards enduring connection, towards love. Mary Oliver, uh, look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name, is nameless now. Every year, everything I've ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning uh, none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, 
knowing your life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. When it cuts deep, grief really does leave us feeling uh, shattered. And uh, it can be like you go to sleep and you rest and you wake up to find that your home's been burned down. At, it, at its depths. And, and people who have experienced it will know what I'm saying. Yeah. And it has this very isolating kind of effect, and yet it's a very, it's the most human thing there is, right? And whether it's, it's the death of, of a, you know, maybe at its peak, the death of a, of a longtime partner, or the, the loss of a, a parent or child or loved one or the loss of a relationship. Uh, this is um, yeah, a very uh, central piece of being human. There's this neurological condition like uh, when, when somebody's lost a limb um, amputation, like it's actually quite common for them to experience phantom limb pain, you know, and so where one's hand or arm had been, there's a sense of the pain actually still being there, you know. And so there's actually pain where there is absence, right? And grief can, can feel like that. Yeah, it's like this painful absence that is so present. I uh, was talking about this with, with a friend, Dharma teacher, and he said, uh, you know, he was reflecting on his own experiences of, of grief, and he said, uh, you know, grief, it, it can be like you're living in a roomy poem that doesn't end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. This is Naomi Shihabnai. Uh, people do not pass away. They die and then they stay. Yeah. So when, uh, when loss runs deep, um, It's like it, it takes so much time for the mind to actually acclimatize to it, you know? And there is a sense of, um, yeah, the mind kind of vacillates between, uh, you know, some kind of acceptance and a certain kind of disbelief. And there's some aspects of, of bargaining often, uh, you know, of essentially, as, as I see it, it's like the, the mechanisms of, of denial work, and then they stop working. And with that, the sort of sense of the heart is like rising and falling with the effectiveness of the coping strategy. And, uh, you know, like a good Buddhist warrior thinks they should just plow through that and like denial, there's no place for that here. There's no place for magical thinking, right? But um, I don't think that's so, you know, it's, uh, we really need to have so much mercy for the ways the mind just grapples to make sense of loss. You know. 
Now, uh, Buddhism would say it would often say something like, "Well, love is not what causes the the pain of loss. It's it's attachment. Yeah, it's the clinging and." Uh, Maybe that's right in some ways. But a part of me feels like the way we love, uh, especially, especially, not only, but especially if there's um, some kind of sexual connection, sexual relationship, I just don't actually know that it's possible to distill the clinging from the love. That it may be that in those kinds of love, in the love of a partner or family, that it's actually a kind of fantasy that we could actually love without any holding on. I'm not even sure if that's the ideal. So for a while, um, I think our task is really uh, just to, to survive it, you know, to survive loss. And uh, it can feel like you're just sort of puttering around in circles in some kind of hell realm. Stephen Levine uh, sort of adapting something that, that the author E.L. Doctorow said. Uh, Levine writes, um, grief is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. That's so beautiful. To not know, not be able to know how the heart will find its relief, how the heart can regain its composure. The headlights don't shine far enough down the road. And the mind wants that. The mind wants to see the path, right? But um, that's not how grief is. I was uh, I was giving a, a lecture at uh, during the summer. I spent some time at UCLA and um, do some teaching at the mindfulness center there. And uh, they have a, a, a friend and colleague, Marv Belzer, teaches an undergraduate class for UCLA students and. Um, I gave a lecture in one in that one of those classes about uh, about love and sexuality and mindfulness and uh, and I remember you know we kind of like predictably got a question at the end from one of these undergrad students uh, about about heartbreak and what to do with it and um, and I. Uh, I thought back to Freud's famous piece, Mourning and Melancholia, where he distinguishes sort of like normal mourning from, you know, pathological grief and basically says like the way that you get over loss is to uh, love again, to reinvest the oneself in something new. And uh, my co-teacher, Marv, like, jumped up and said, like, no, no. I don't know everything about love, but let me, please, let me speak for the beauty of heartbreak. You know, let me speak for this. There's a, uh, there's a scene in... Uh, 
in the show Louis, Louis C.K.'s show, uh, where he's talking to this kind of wise, curmudgeonly doctor uh, about a breakup. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I thought I'd read, read the exchange here. So, so yeah, they, the doctor's walking his dog. It's he's Louis' doctor, I think, and uh, and he's sort of like this, uh, yeah, iconoclastic, interesting, interesting form of wisdom. Anyway, so uh, okay, so the doctor says, so so you took a chance on being happy, even though you knew that later, later on, you would be sad. He says, yeah. And now you're sad. Yeah. So what's the problem? <laughs> he says, I'm too sad. Look, I liked the feeling of being in love with her. I liked it. But now she's gone, and I miss her, and it sucks. And I didn't think it was going to be this bad. And I feel like, why even be happy if it's just going to lead to this? It wasn't worth it. The doctor says, uh, misery is wasted on the miserable. <laughs> this is love. Missing her because she's gone, wanting to die. You're so lucky. You're like a walking poem. <laughs> Would you rather be some kind of fantasy, some kind of Disney ride? Is that what you want? Don't you see this is the good part? This is what you've been digging for all this time. Now you finally have it in your hands, this sweet nugget of love, sweet, sad love. And you want to throw it away. You've got it all wrong. The bad part is when you forget her, when you don't care about her, when you don't care about anything. The bad part's coming. So enjoy the heartbreak while you can. Yeah. My experiences with, uh, with grief and dharma practice is that what, what dharma does, uh, it doesn't make it actually hurt less. But It ensures that the pain merely hurts rather than harms. You know the pain that does some harm to the heart, that closes the heart in some way, versus the pain that just hurts, maybe hurts like hell. But just hurts, and actually has the capacity to to soften the heart. And this this perhaps is the redemption of grief that something in the heart is being nourished, if we can do it in a conscious way which is a a courageous gesture. Uh, The practice may be um, sort of helps distill the maybe bewilderment, resentment, confusion, to distill that out, to kind of purify the grief so that it is just unadulterated, just the sense of loss. And that kind of pain, as one of my friends said, uh, like puts you so close to God. In those moments, it's like the ego 
is all out of moves. You know? right. It's all out of moves. And the, the heart is pierced by the kind of simplicity of loss. Now, uh, this kind of, of groundlessness, groundlessness either makes us love or hate. When we know that, um, you know, we, we, I think we all have experiences at some point where we realize like, oh, our, what, what we took to be solid, what we took to depend on, I sort of vaguely had this sense that some, something, someone, some or, the order of the universe was securing my well-being in a way. And for me, it was actually the experience of 9-11 that uh, undercut that in a way, where the, the, for the first time in my life, the kind of groundlessness of, of the human condition was, was undeniably apparent. Yeah. And grief can be that way too. And the heart will tend to harden or soften in the face of that kind of groundlessness. And Dharma practice is really, so much of Dharma practice is about not squandering pain, not, not, not squandering the opportunity to use our life to soften the heart. My, when I think about uh, Dharma practice and what, how it's functioned for me in my life, what I, what I want from it, uh, sometimes I've thought that my goal is to be able to love well, that, that Dharma will help me love well. And sometimes my thought is that Dharma will help me die well. And um, of all the preparations for our own mortality, to me, uh, grief actually may be among the most valuable, the most precious. that experience of driving with the lights not shining far enough ahead to see, and that experience of just not knowing, just, it's like the heart acclimatizing to a certain kind of disorientation, of pain, and of poignancy. And uh, there are not many ways to really practice dying, but surrendering to loss, surrendering to loss uh, is one way, actually, I think, to, to prepare the heart. And the Buddha says we don't do this to be morbid. We do this uh, um, so that we, the heart is more and more free of suffering. So I know this talk has been uh, strikingly devoid of uh, tips and techniques. <laughs> <laughs>
but uh, you know, people who are in grief actually don't want that. Yeah, yeah we, we, I don't, it's, we really want to like honor the place of this experience in the human, the human realm. And, uh, and then at some point, you know, maybe it becomes clear that, that the grief has become a kind of placeholder for other griefs, for other pain, you know. And then our practice is to keep looking and to distill, to see how one loss may resonate with others. And uh, we just keep going, keep looking, keep, uh, we have a, there's a kind of, Dharma practice is a certain kind of confidence in looking. The more deeply we look, the more reason we'll have to love. So we have, uh, a few t few minutes for uh, questions, comments. Uh, we'll pass a pass a mic if if people have things to share. Yeah. You okay, George? Yeah. We um, we've got one back here, but if there's another, maybe. Pardon me. <laughs> oh. Thank you, Matthew. Sure. Um, you were saying that you were teaching in UCLA. Yeah. And um, I'm just kind of curious what you stopped right when you said, oh, you're colleague said, oh, hold on, yeah, I uh, want to speak to this, and, and then you kind of moved on, but I was kind of curious to see if you wanted to share what he said. Yeah, yeah, and right, um, yeah, he, he, uh, he didn't say much, he, but he just felt like uh, he needed to provide a kind of counterpoint to me telling her to fall in love again, basically. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think he would say some of, some of what I've said, just about the, about the poignancy of loss and the, the, the way in which that actually connects us to a kind of, of love that is, um, Maybe we could say bigger than the person that's been lost, and uh, um, I, I do. I do think the the love for the person can actually just become love, and that's a beautiful evolution in the heart. I just want to say right on. Okay. It, it was absolutely perfect. Mm. I've had a severe grief situation in my past, actually from driving in fog. Yeah. Um, I do think that grief is by far the most precious. Mm. Everything. Yeah. And denial works yeah. for a while. And the groundlessness is just perfect. I mean, it just really describes it. But it's also the most transformative. Yeah. Yeah. You do become quite a different person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there, there, I think whereas uh, there, 
there can be a real, there's a real, there's dignity in grief, whereas maybe in my most, there's not, there's less dignity in anger and worry. It's I'm actually it. grateful for it. Grateful for it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, beautiful. Yeah, please. You were mentioning that uh, there's not many tips yeah. to offer. Yeah. In my life, there was many, many years without grief, without a death. Yeah. And then when it did happen, just one of the outcomes of it was the heart being kind of bared. Yeah. Like it does. And uh, a result of that didn't last long, but was this letting go of a lot of petty um, things that happened in your life. Yeah. And uh, a feeling of being alive to yeah. a certain degree, because all of a sudden you've seen both sides of life and death. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So that was um, one positive result. From yeah, that. yeah. So, Thank you, thank you, lovely. Yeah, you know, it, in a certain way, it may be that we, we don't really believe in impermanence until we lose something we can't imagine living without. And then uh, that can crack the heart open and, and uh, in beautiful ways, actually, and, and uh, cuts through a lot of, a lot of uh, pettiness. You know, like there's a, you're reminding me of Don Juan and, uh, you know, the, just turn, turn to, to death on your shoulder uh, to, like, as a, your counsel, in a way, to cut through a world of pettiness. Thank you for your talk. The thought just occurred to me right now that it's a shame that we, um, as a society, have chosen to medicalize death and to ship people off um, where they're hidden away from the rest of us and this very important human um, event is mystified and made sort of um, made maybe overly frightening and overly strange and um, wouldn't it be better if it could be normalized, welcomed, and um, given its honored place, and that the young generations and all of us could have it be something that's, you know, informs how we live our lives and, and what we expect of our lives and um, yeah. Just, yeah, that's yeah. the idea. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I was wondering if you had any recommended texts or books or anything if we wanted to keep researching this kind of subject. Yeah. Um, yeah, a couple things come to mind. Um, uh, and you sort of have to figure out, you know, find whether you like their their writing voice. But uh, Stephen Levine, unattended sorrow, is is a is a strong one. And the same thing, his book, A Year to Live, which is actually a kind of program. You can be read just as a book, or it can be read. It can be done as a a program 
to envision if this were the last year of one's life, how one would live it, and uh, you know, to to the point that was just made, the ways that informs things. Um, Jack Jack's stuff is great, or the the wise heart has some, you know, it definitely has material on this too. So th those would be good good places to start. Yeah. Thank you. Sure, sure. Sure. Maybe one one or two more if there are other people. Yeah. Thanks so much. Sure. Um, you know, my, uh, my, my grandmother, she's on hospice, and um, she, she's 98 years old. And, um, you know, she's, uh, she's been my best friend my whole life, mm -hmm. you know. Um, she's been the kindest person my whole life, cool. you know. And, um, you know, uh, most days she's really confused, you know, and doesn't know, you know, I'm her brother or, you know, I've been on any number of things. But, you know, the last time, I, you know, and I, I kind of just ex started accepting her her death, you know, and um, and more more for her, you know, because the quality of life she's living right now is, is you know, um, it's not my grandmother, you know, and um and she knows that, you know, she, she, she's said so much, you know, last time I talked to her, she said, you know, I'll see you next go around. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but, uh, she just keeps hanging on, you know, and, uh, but we had a really clear, the clearest talk I've had with her in probably 10 years, you know, and, um, told me she loved me. I love you, Kenny. And, uh, you know, just, just a lot of different things, you know, and, um, my wife here told her, I'm, I'll take care of him, Grandma. And she told her, told her, thank you. And, yeah. um, you know, and I'm not sure what's going to happen when she passes. You know, I don't know if I'm just masking it and trying to, you know, because that, that's, that's, that's a pretty awesome person to have in your life leave. Yeah. You know, that's been, she never judged me. She never... You know, I, that did a lot of stuff that could be judged, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, um, she would listen to me and, like, you know, I'd come over her house and just start talking about stuff. And, and so, my, my, you know, I, my yoga instructor, she told me, she's all, Ken, you, it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel this, you know, and it's like, you know, and I, and I feel that's true, but I feel like I, I need to wait, you know, I need to, even though I have cried a few times about it, but. Um, it's like before I really start grieving, you know, um, it's like I need to just be there for my grandma. And um, so grieving is, it's, it's, it's really confusing. You know, like the gentleman over there, I, uh, you know, uh, except for my, my best friend, my dog, you know, um, some years back dying, you know, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. But I've never really had... You know, I mean, that's not true. I mean, I've had, my grandfather died in my arms when I was nine years old, you know, and um, I didn't know that's what happened at the time. I, you know, they just said, oh, he went to sleep, you know. But, uh, you know, and um, so really this is kind of the first time I'm going to experience it myself, you know. And um, I, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to miss her, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate you uh, bringing that into into the room and you saying that out yeah. loud. And I just want uh, to thank you too, though, for yeah, kind of giving me some views on how to how to look at it. You know, as opposed to trying to run from it. Sure. You know, just take it and cradle it like a baby and say, "Hey, you know, it's okay." Yeah. And um, anyway, thank you. Yeah. Thank you sure. very much. Sure. All right, let's just, uh, just sit for a couple minutes.
they are practice. Give us the strength and courage, their kindness to be there for our life in its beauty, its loss. May this understanding of impermanence be a cause for greater love. So thank you, thank you, I wish you well.